Welcome to Emerge Dynamics. Emerge Dynamics. The podcast for those who manage and invest in middle market private companies across the globe. globe. We're telling the stories of the unsung champions who take enormous risks every day to weave the fabric of our societies. Those who collectively, from the multi-trillion dollar largest market on the planet, we're diving into the dynamics of what makes some of them emerge from their peers and create incredible returns and impact on their communities. This is Emerge Dynamics. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Emerge Dynamics podcast. I'm David Cusimano here with Eric Wingerter. Morning, folks. Good to be back. Absolutely. And we are wrapping up. Well, I guess maybe we're starting to wrap up. I think we'll probably have one more episode that'll get a little bit more technical with some math. But we're wrapping up, maybe, Eric, I was thinking this morning of the mini-series within the mini-series, right? We're doing a series on valuation. And within that, we've done a few episodes on the value builder drivers, the drivers of value that the value builder system used. You know, we talked an earlier episode about how we're fans of the value builder system. I don't know that they're the authority or you know the definitive guide to what is a value driver in a business, but they've got really, really good way of mapping it out. So we've been talking about each of those drivers in the last couple of episodes. And today we're going to get to a few more. And I'll list them, Eric, and then maybe if you want to unpack them and put them together, I think we're going to do these three together. The next three we have are financial performance, growth potential, and the valuation teeter-totter. We're not going to put them together because they're not important and we can just lump them all together, but I think there's a similar conversation that we can have around those three. We're going to step back just a little bit, David, to one of our previous conversations where we talked about the basics of business valuation and what are the three main moving components, mathematically, if you will, on the business valuation. And it's the inherent cash flows in the business. It's the growth rate or projected growth rate of the cash flows in the business. And then it's the discount rate or actual risk within those numbers. How likely are they going to be continuing? What are the inherent risk in the business? And so, Getting back to those three components, what we're really talking about is focusing on those first two, which is the actual numbers themselves, the cash flows themselves, and what's the expected growth rate in those cash flows. So we're going to be homing in on those two with this. And the reason why we generally kind of talk about these together is because they are more about the actual numbers that are in the business, the financial performance is really focused on what are the cash flows in the business, how profitable is the business, but it's not just what are those numbers, but what is the quality of those numbers? And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Growth potential is growth potential. What is the growth rate in the business and how do we quantify that and how assured are we of that growth potential? And we'll get into a little bit more with that. And then the last one, as you mentioned, the valuation teeter-totter is where we bring the, when we talked about EBITDA as a measure of cash flow, the teeter-totter actually goes a little bit deeper into that. And just because we're recording revenues and expenses, hopefully on an accrual basis as the best indication of, of what the true operating profitability is for the company. But how are we collecting on that? Are we collecting very quickly on the revenue side? Does it take a long time for us to collect on the revenue side? So that becomes 
an issue of the timing of those inherent cash flows of the business. And that can have a significant impact on the overall valuation of the company if it's taking a long time for us to collect those revenues or we having to pay out our expenses a lot earlier than we're able to collect, then that's additional cash flow financing on the company and burden on the company, and that reduces the overall value. So those are the high-level conversation around those three topics, but we can drive into some specifics here, David, on the three. May we start with the financial performance, the basic cash flows of the business. And I know, David, you and I, we deal with this a lot where, particularly for some of our smaller companies, they like to run their books a lot of times, we say, like a checkbook. That's not necessarily a good indication of what the real financial performance is on the company. So maybe we talk a little bit about that, David, about the quality of the financial performance and kind of a cash base, if you will, approach to the financial statements versus an accrual base to the financial statements. Absolutely, Eric. I think that's important to dig in there because at least when it comes to quantitative aspects of business value and just business health, I'd say that's the area where we have seen the most issue. I know in my experience, I've seen so many companies that they run their books on a cash basis, which sounds innocuous enough when you say it. We like cash, but really they're just simply recording When an expense comes out the bank account, it gets put in the ledger. And that's as simple as it is. And as long as we can reconcile the bank account at the end of the month, then we're done. It's just so misleading. Unfortunately, that's usually not the only issue. We've seen so many times when companies take that approach, they're also being sloppy in how they're even recording the expenses. But even if they're perfect at that, you just don't have a picture of what's going on. Right. A lot of times, I think it stems from business owners accustomed to running their own personal financial statements, if you will, as a checkbook, like most of us do. We have cash coming in from our employer or from the business, and we write checks or we pay uh, online, et cetera, et cetera, and we keep a checkbook. And it's a running total of what my cash balance is. And that's fine from a personal side of things, but it's not the right thing when it comes to a business side of things, because there are a lot of other things going on in a business much differently than what happens in a personal household. And those activities, if they're not properly accounted for, really can not give the full picture as far as how the company is operating and the profitability of the company. So I know we always talk about here that it's always good to run your accounting on an accrual basis. And Well, Eric, I'll give an example if we could, because I I know some people might be hearing that and saying, well, what does it matter? I don't care. I don't care if I'm doing it correct or not. One example is insurance. Insurance premiums for businesses are often due once a year. And let's say you have a renewal in August. And so you're going to make a large payment in August. And for now, let's assume you're not financing it. But if you are financing it, this is still going to be important. But let's just say you're going to pay your insurance for the year in August. Well, when you look at your profitability in August, probably it's going to look terrible if you're in a cash basis system because August just bore the cost of a year's worth of insurance. So when you 
run your income statement for August, looks terrible. Then the next month in September, you run your income statement there, it's going to look better than it really is because September didn't have to bear any cost of insurance, even though there was insurance in place during September. And so by putting an accrual in where we can now recognize this cost of insurance over the period of the coverage of the insurance, we now have an accurate picture every month of how profitable our business was. And I think a lot of people will hear that example and say, okay, great, but that's just insurance. It's just too complicated. I'll just remember. I'll just look at August and know I need to, in my brain, do a mental adjustment and take the insurance out. The problem is this isn't the only one, right? We think there's the only one, but turns out, especially as our businesses grow, there become numerous things like this, and it becomes almost impossible to keep up with them in your head. Even if you could, why would you? This is energy you can be putting toward pleasing your customers better. Why would you use that energy on mental gymnastics on your income statement? So sorry if I'm going too deep into there. No, no, I'm no. That one because I, I see it a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's a great example. And the other side of that is, is that a lot of times I hear folks say, well, I pay my taxes on a cash basis. I'm running my company, but I actually pay my taxes on a cash basis. So why don't I just keep my financial statements on a tax basis? And I would argue, I said that that's fine, but usually that's because your accountant, your outside accountant might just be a tax account as opposed to may not be getting audited financial statements, may not be getting reviewed financial statements, anything along those lines. And so you're just relying on the tax accountant. And a lot of times the tax accountant is saying, yeah, you need to keep your financial statements on a tax basis because it's easier for us to uh, do the tax return. There's some legitimacy to that. But the reality is, is, is that that's not telling the full story. And it would be much better for you to run your financials on an accrual basis and then very easily convert that back. There's a little bit extra work on your tax accountant, but they're very capable of doing that. And then they can revert back to a cash basis if that's how you're paying your taxes. I'd say do what your tax preparer says to do when it comes to filing your taxes. Don't listen to us on that one. However, like you said, Eric, I mean, we can run our books on an accrual basis. And I know a lot of businesses use QuickBooks and QuickBooks, it's one toggle. You toggle one thing and boom, you now are looking at cash basis books. So your tax preparer can now use that as the basis for the tax return. It's not like you've got to do one or the other or hire a whole other new group of people to maintain two separate books. You just run your business on an accrual basis. You have to put the accruals in. You should have resources on your team to help you do that. When it comes to tax time, if your tax preparer says file on a cash basis, you've now got cash basis statements and you can hand those over to the tax person. Right. So definitely we would be strong proponents of running your books on an accrual basis, making sure that you have the right resources, either internally or externally, to make sure that you're doing that in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, wherever that makes sense. And beyond that, we'd say, if it makes sense, if you have those financial statements on a accrual basis and they are either reviewed or better yet audited by an outside accounting firm, it just increases the quality of the reporting And when you go to sell your company or at any point in time when you're looking at the value of the company, you can feel a lot more comfortable with that you're using the right results of the company as the basic foundation of your calculations for the value of the business. 
And so we would also encourage where it makes sense that you go ahead and get those financial statements reviewed and or audited. And in some cases, there's requirements that you might have from your banks or from other external parties where those are going to be requirements. And and they are just because it helps to ensure the quality of those financial statements as they're being presented to folks. And Eric, just to tie that into valuation a bit more, you're right. You will be so much more comfortable that you're looking at the actual numbers if you go get a review or an audit. The buyer will also be more comfortable <laughs> that they're looking at actual numbers. And as we said a few episodes ago, and you said just at the beginning of this conversation, right? Valuation boils down to cash flow, future cash flow, and risk. Well, the less risk the buyer perceives that these numbers might be wrong, the higher your value, the more they're willing to pay. Exactly. We spent a lot of time there on that, on the financial performance of the company, the quality of the financial reporting within the company. If we could shift gears a little bit over to the growth potential, and I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time with it, but clearly it is a major component of the calculation of the intrinsic value of a company, the cash flows of the company, the present value of the cash flows. It's very important to know what is the growth rate of those cash flows in the future. So maybe if we could just spend a little bit of time talking about financial projections and how important are financial projections both to operating the company as well as the overall planning for the future growth of the company. Absolutely. This is kind of leading into the growth potential driver, right? So a buyer will pay more the more they perceive that there's future runway left for this business. So if you have an amazing business, has had unreal performance, but it has now captured 95% of its market, buyers aren't going to get the cash flow that you made in the past. They're going to get the cash flow that the business makes in the future. And if they perceive there's not much still out there to go get, that future cash flow will be weak, they'll pay very little, even if you have an amazing EBITDA for your last 12 months. So to the extent that we can demonstrate to a buyer that there is a future cash flow stream, which is at least as strong as it has been in the past, again, the more they'll pay, right? And if you do a net present value calculation, you know, the math can prove that out. How do we prove this to a buyer? How do we demonstrate to this to the buyer? Well, one really good way is, like you said, is to projections, to build out a financial performa that demonstrates out into the future, here's what Mr. or Mrs. Buyer, your world could look like when you're the owner of this business. In smaller business, we might consolidate some things or simplify the performa. But in my mind, an ideal performa is a monthly income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement all linked together. So you can see forecast cash flow, forecast free cash flow. And so a buyer can do a return on investment calculation from what you're presenting to them to have this by month, at least for the next 12 months, preferably even more into the future, I think really starts to lay the groundwork for a really solid conversation with the buyer about the future of your business. And David, going into the mechanics, if you will, of putting forth those projections, I know we often, when we're looking at projections of others, is the quality of that is dependent on the assumptions. There's an assumption to every one of those numbers that are in there. So I know For us, we always strongly encourage folks to have the right types of assumptions and then have the documentation for the validity of those assumptions. And then it's always good to create some sensitivity to that 
just to see, hey, if this assumption is off a little bit here and there, what does that do? And so you can start to see the sensitivities in that, both for yourself as a business owner, as you're working to execute on that, as well as from a buyer's perspective, they can see kind of what's the riskiness in those projections. 100%, Eric. The assumptions, you can make a projection look any way you want. The whole garbage in, garbage out principle. You have to have defendable assumptions. And I like to think about like a straight face test. Like I could look at someone with a straight face and defend the assumption that I'm making about some aspect of the business. And like you said, Eric, the sensitivity, I think, is sometimes even more important than just the static model because the odds that the world over the next couple of years are going to unfold exactly like you have in your model, the odds are pretty close to zero. (laughs) that the world will look exactly like this. Will it look like some close variant of this? Probably so, right? And so I think, and not just for a buyer's sake, also for our own internal sake, we want to understand like, hey, if the growth rate is going to be 15% next year, what if it isn't? If it's only 10%, are we defaulting on our bank covenants? Or are we just fine? We're just a little less happy than if we had a growth rate of 15%. Right. Right? Those are the kinds of stories that we can tell by building some scenarios and sensitivity analysis to really give first ourselves comfort, but then next a buyer comfort about the future states of the world this business could be in. One last thing, David, I'm thinking on the growth potential because we talk about this a lot as well. When we talk about from the eyes of a buyer's perspective, a buyer may come in and say, you know what, I know this company is saying they can grow at 10% a year. And we feel pretty confident based on their track record, based on what we see in the business, et cetera, et cetera. We think that that's a pretty good opportunity for the company as it stands right now. However, we've got access to a multitude of other customers or other products or other things like that. And we could actually expand this business maybe twofold, threefold, fourfold compared to what this company can do. How does that play into that valuation? Sometimes we talk about it as a strategic buyer, let's say, David, Uh who said, hey, I can do it. How does that relate to the value or maybe what is that buyer willing to pay for that same company and that projected growth rate versus what they could do with the company post-acquisition? How does that play into the value? That is where it gets really fun, Eric. If you look at it as a disciplined buyer, in fact, there's advice, I hope I'm not butchering his name too much, Professor Oswath Damadoran, he's a professor at NYU, one of the top valuation people in the world. And his advice to buyers is never, ever give assign value to a target company that you, the buyer, are creating. And what he says makes good sense. And in theory, he's right. In the real world, anything can and does get negotiated, right? So I think a buyer is going to look and say, if you're on a 10% growth trajectory all on your own, they're going to give you credit for that. And if they can believe that if your business was left alone, it would grow 10% again next year, they'll probably give you credit for that in their valuation that they do. Now, if the buyer has the ability to take that 10% growth and turn it into a 40% growth, in theory, they're not going to pay you any extra for that because that's value they bring to the table. However, when theory turns into uh, practice, it depends on how badly that buyer wants your business, right? And if there are other suitors out there, this buyer may say, you know what? 
I'm not going to give them all of the value of the 40% growth rate because then I would be getting no arbitrage at all. But maybe I'll give them 15 to 20% of their growth rate. Maybe I'll assume a 20% growth rate when I'm doing their valuation. And I know I'll be paying a premium for that, but I'm still ahead as a buyer because I know that I can grow this business 40% when I get it, right? So that's where the fun gray area, and I wouldn't call it gray as if there's anything wrong with it. There's nothing unethical about it, but that's where the difference between how a buyer perceives value and a seller perceives value starts to come out. And there's always a gap. It's rare there isn't. And that's where it takes, I think, really informed advisors and buyers and sellers to understand that there always will be a gap. But how do we close this gap, right? How do we help people see each other's positions to get that gap closed to a point at which both buyer and seller are better off? We know we can do probably multiple sessions just on that specific topic. Right, that might be um, a negotiation topic right there, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But backing it down to what is in the control, so to speak, of the seller, uh, the business owner. And what you need to focus on is your own financial performance of the company, the quality of that financial performance. And when it comes to the growth potential, being very realistic and very methodical about documenting what your assumptions are for your growth rate. And then when you go to executing on that, use that as a guide and come back and evaluate, well, how close were you on those assumptions? And did you outperform or underperform? And how are you doing that on a consistent basis? But those are all the things that you can control that, if well controlled, are going to be the things that improve the overall valuation of the company and the numbers, which also increases the value of the company. Absolutely. So David, the last item, if we've got a few minutes, is the valuation teeter-totter. Kind of a strange way maybe to describe what it is. But I mean, fundamentally, it's what is the inherent cash cycle, if you will, between the collection on the revenue side and the payment on the expense side? Are we having significant extension of credit to our customers? And are we able to get reasonable terms from our vendors? Or are we a company that is a very payroll-driven type of company, let's say a consulting firm or something like that, where you know we're paying upfront weekly, every two weeks, we're paying all of our employees. And so collection from our clients as we're billing that out is very important. So maybe we just talk a little bit about that valuation teeter-totter, that cash cycle and how that impacts the overall value for the company. Absolutely. And Eric, like you said, it's kind of a funny name for this concept. It's what Value Builder System uses, but I guess it works. But the concept is super important for business owners to understand. A word or a term people might be more familiar with is working capital. And I'm sure many business owners have heard the term working capital. I think few of them fully understand it. Working capital is cash stuck in our businesses. Just to make a simple example, you know, if I sell something to you, Eric, and I charge $1,000 for it and you pay me in 30 days, well, for 30 days, I've already performed the service or delivered the product, whatever it is. But for that 30 days, that cash is still in your bank account and not mine. That's cash stuck in my business, stuck in someone else's account other than mine. This sounds relatively straightforward and simple. And what's the big deal? You'll just get the $1,000 the next month. Where it can really become tricky is as we're growing. 
right? So if I keep selling $1,000 items and I keep selling them at an increasing rate, the amount of cash trapped in my business will continue to grow. And this can really cause a drain on the company. It can cause a need for extra financing. There is such a thing as working capital financing. A form of that is ABL, asset-based lending, that we can get into maybe in another discussion to the extent that a business can alleviate that. They just need that much less cash to grow. And therefore, as they grow, their business just creates more cash for them tying it back to a buyer and valuation. The more a buyer perceives that, hey, this business can grow a whole lot and I'm not going to have to keep investing more and more cash into it in order to earn that growth, they pay more. Right. And even outside of just the value side of things, it's the type of thing that I see business owners can get so caught in very quickly. If they don't properly manage this, their cash, boy, they can get a quick surprise, particularly for a high growth type of company, you can get a very, very quick surprise when it comes to the cash needs within the company. And we often see that. So not only is it great to get a handle on this from a valuation perspective, but it's certainly from an operational perspective, it's a very, very important component of management of your business. And Eric, in the extreme, you can actually grow yourself into bankruptcy. In the notes page, I'll put a link to an article I wrote as a story about talking with a friend who just earned the largest contract he had ever had in his business. And I asked him some questions about the numbers. I said, I hope you've got a line of credit lined up or you've got a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. He says, no, I don't. I said, then you're going bankrupt. And uh, suddenly his smile changed. So I'll put the link to that. In the show notes, so people can read that if they want to read through the numbers and kind of see how that plays out. And Eric, so talking about what a business owner can do about this, so many times we just assume when I sell something to my customers, there are terms I have to give my customers, and that's just the way it is. And there's not much I can do about it. I'm just bound by my industry. Let's challenge that. Let's push back on that assumption a little bit because I think that's where the action items come in to really drive value out of this driver here. And I like to use the example of Dell, Dell Computer. I know they've had some challenges since then. I'm not commenting on Dell recently. I'm commenting on Dell in the beginning. This was an industry that had a lot of working capital. If you were a computer manufacturer, you had to go out and buy all these parts, which you had to put cash out to buy all these parts. And then you'd have to build computers. And then when orders would come in, you'd ship the computer. What Dell did that was just, to the best of my knowledge, different than anyone else in the industry is they waited for the order to come in. And then they went and bought the parts and then they assembled the parts and then they shipped it to you. So when you, they didn't let you pay on terms, you paid right away for your computer. So Dell was able to get the cash up front, then build the computer, then ship it to you. They had a drastically lower need for cash. They were able to grow their business very, very fast without needing the cash their competitors needed. They flipped that model around and had great success with it. I know Dell ran into challenges later. I don't think the challenges stemmed from that model. There were other things going on. Right. It boils down to evaluating what are the general terms that we have with our customers, with our clients, and what can we do to change that so that we're collecting those funds either more in advance or right at the same time that the product or services are being delivered. And then when it comes to the cost side of things, are there ways that we can 
utilize uh, legitimate credit with our vendors in order to extend that out so that we're at worst, we're kind of uh, equal in the timing that we have on collection versus the timing that we have on payment. If we can actually accelerate that on the receipt side of things and extend on the payment side of things, then that's just additional cash flow in the business. And as you said, instead of cash getting stuck in the business, it's actually cash generating faster in the business. And those are the things that we look for if possible. So I mean, my takeaway there is from the tactical perspective, what can we do just to look at our AR and make sure our customers are paying on time? There's often things we can do there tactically just to improve our collections. And then on the strategic side, how do we flip this whole model around and deliver something unique to our customers where it's outside of what the industry accepts as a norm? How do we do that and really just collect cash faster? Right. Well, David, I know we spent a lot of time here on the financials, both the quality of the financials, the growth rate, how do the cash flows coming out of the financials, how do those all impact and some real practical ways of looking at the business to improve those metrics and in doing so, help the business in the results in the business itself and then help the value. I know we have a few other things that we want to cover around this whole topic, but I think kind of teeing up for maybe next time, one that I think we oftentimes, we try to measure it, but we were going to dive a little bit more into how you really measure this the most effective way, and that's our customer satisfaction. Absolutely. So folks, join us next time as we talk about customer satisfaction. That's the last value builder driver that we have not yet covered. And then we'll be going into distortions to our financials. Everything we've talked about so far assumes that our financials are not only accurate, but undistorted. And turns out there's all sorts of ways that our financials can be distorted from a value perspective, even if our bookkeeper is doing everything right. We're going to talk about that next time. With that, off to work. Off to work. <laughs>